amongst the trees of a dark wood on the battlefield near Combray. Battalions of men of short stature, but not short on courage, experienced their baptism of fire in November 1917. For the Bantams, all roads led to Borlon Wood. Amidst the gunsmoke of a November morning, a group of soldiers emerged from a shattered wood in northern France after five days of heavy fighting. These men were almost at their end. It had been the hardest battle of their experience on the Western Front. A casual observer would have noticed that amongst the ranks of soldiers who filed away were men of a much shorter stature, men much shorter than the average soldier to be found in the trenches of the Great War. Once the army had laughed at these shorter men, but now in this battle at Bourlon Wood they'd shown their true fighting spirit. These were the Bantams, the Bantam soldiers of the Great War, entire battalions recruited from men who would normally have been rejected from the army on account of their height or lack of height. So who were these Bantam soldiers and what brought them to Bourlon Wood in 1917? A popular postcard of the period contains a verse celebrating the enlistment of these Bantam soldiers at the beginning of the war. It's called the British Bantams. There is a bonny brood of Bantams as yet unknown to fame who have joined the British roosters to earn a glorious name. They are sturdy and they're willing and sure to stand the test. What price the German eagle when the Bantams leave their nest? When the Great War broke out in August 1914 and Britain declared war on Germany, Lord Kitchener was Secretary of State for War. There was much talk of a war being over by Christmas, something that we've spoken about on this podcast a few times, but Kitchener was one of those who did not subscribe to that view. He feared it would be a long and protracted conflict and Britain's regular army, its reserves and its territorials would soon diminish on a battlefield and they would need to be replaced by volunteers. So he called for the raising of a new army, or Kitchener's army as the papers quickly called it, and posters went up right across Britain calling for 100,000 volunteers to step forward as part of the first new army to enlist. Within a few months, almost a million had joined the new army, Kitchener's army, And such was the response that many recruiting offices were quite discerning. If you had bad teeth, you were rejected. If you had poor eyesight, you could be rejected. But another criteria for rejection was your height. If you were under five foot three, that was the minimum height requirement for joining the army. And so shorter men who fell beneath that height requirement were initially rejected when they tried to enlist. Some men, and we know from the records, went to different places across Britain. So keen were they to join the army that having been rejected in Barnsley, they would go to Sheffield, they would go to London, they would go to even Glasgow from the two ends of the country to try and join the army. But because of their height, an obvious criteria that could be seen as they walked into a recruiting office, they were rejected. 
And so we might therefore ask, why were there so many shorter men? Well, Britain's industrial might achieved in the century before the Great War had resulted in industry right across the country. And there were many cities and towns across Britain where heavy industry had resulted in pollution, in terrible living conditions, poor sanitation, childhood disease. All of this had contributed towards a generation of men who were shorter. And we don't have to go far in Britain to find houses where there are seemingly very small front doors because in times past, many people were shorter than they are now. But in particular, in these polluted cities of Britain, which were very often in the north, living conditions, diet, health, had all created a generation of men who were below the national average of height. The world in which they'd grown up in had quite literally stunted their growth. Their growth might have been stunted, but their desire to serve their country was far from that. And so these men were greatly frustrated by the inability to join the army when the war broke out. But at the end of 1914, the Great War went static on the Western Front. The trench lines were dug, the Western Front was created, and it was clear that this war would not be over by Christmas. In fact, not for many Christmases to come. And as 1914 moved into 1915, the number of volunteers stepping forward to join diminished slightly because the initial rush of volunteers had dried up. Men were already in the armed forces. So the criteria for enlistment was changed. They became less fussy about your teeth. If you had poor eyesight, you could be put into a unit that required you to work away from the battlefield, behind the lines. And if you were short in stature, you could now join the army. The restrictions were lifted and men under the height of five foot three could now enlist as soldiers. And in the winter of 1914, at Birkenhead, the first Bantam Battalion, in fact battalions in this case, two of them, were raised by the local MP, Alfred Bigland. He opened the doors and 3,000 men stepped forward to enlist, some of them coming from outside of that area, so desperate were they to join the army. And the 15th and 16th battalions of the Cheshire Regiment were raised, the 1st and 2nd Birkenhead battalions, often called Bigland's Bantams after Alfred Bigland MP who had raised them. Other areas then began to do the same and these Bantam battalions made up of these much shorter men were recruited in different places right across Great Britain. Now there's a very good account of the Bantams, Sidney Allenson's The Bantams published in the early 1980s in memory of his father who was a Bantam still remains the best single title on this and I'll put a link to it on the podcast website. Sidney Allenson is still with us. I've seen him post on Twitter in recent times. He's commented occasionally on the podcast. So it's good to see that his book is still available. And in his book, he quotes this account from a Bantam soldier, George Hughes, that gives us an insight into why these men wanted to enlist. I'm willing to join the Bantams. I've been rejected on three different occasions for Kitchener's Army 
because I am only five foot two and a quarter inches. In chest measurement, I am 39 and a half inches and I am 37 years old. We don't kid ourselves to be as likely to be as useful as the Grenadier Guards, but give the little ones a chance to show their worth to king and country. So men like George Hughes stepped up to the mark and regiment after regiment began to recruit these Bantam battalions. So many, in fact, that they were brought together in two separate divisions. The 35th and the 40th divisions were both Bantam formations, with a dozen Bantam battalions in each. But it wasn't just in Britain. In Canada, Bantam battalions were raised there. The 143rd Battalion from British Columbia and the 216th Toronto Battalion were also Canadian Bantam battalions. Now, neither of those ever served overseas. They sent drafts to Britain, who then sent those men out to join battalions on the Western Front. But a large number of Bantams from Canada, who may have emigrated from some of those northern polluted cities of Britain to seek a better life in Canada, but they ended up joining the Canadian Expeditionary Force, and they served too. Now, some of these men, because of the health issues that they had, that had resulted in them being much shorter, were eventually discharged from the army. I suspect if you did a, a study of the enlistments for the average battalion, you would find quite a lot of men that ended up being discharged from the army with silver wound badges. There's probably an interesting study in that. But throughout 1915, they continued with their training. Those two divisions, the 35th and the 40th, prepared for war, and their war would come the following year in 1916, when they were sent out to the Western Front. Now, when these men got to the trenches, they went into the line, and the trenches, of course, were dug from the perspective of British Tommies who were of the average height. It seems about the average height of a British soldier in the First World War was five foot seven. So if you were between five foot and five foot two, which many of these Bantams were, and I'll put a couple of photographs that I've got of Bantam soldiers onto the podcast website so you can get a bit of an insight into this, there's a fusilier standing with a taller, probably average height soldier, and you can see how much smaller he is. And there's another photograph of a soldier in the Royal Berkshire Regiment with his rifle and bayonet, and you can see that the muzzle of the rifle is almost at his eye level. So that gives you just an, an idea just how short he was. So those will give you a bit of an insight into this. And I was surprised, actually, when I looked at the archives of the Imperial War Museum that there weren't more photographs of Bantam soldiers and Bantam units. But given that the battlefield that they were moving into now was built from the perspective of taller soldiers, what problems did these shorter soldiers encounter? Now, I remember years ago, one of the things that really inspired me to get interested in the Great War, apart from all my own family connections, was reading Charlie's War, the comic strip in the 1970s and 80s. This was about a young soldier from London who went off to fight. An amazing bit of work, not always perfect in its history, but very well grounded in some decent research. And it tried to cover a lot of aspects of the First World War. And I remember one particular episode where Charlie and his mates see some of these Bantam soldiers come into the line and they have to put sandbags on the fire steps to be able to see over the parapet of the trench to be able to fire their rifles and they laugh at them. But if you think about it, if you want to be in the trenches of the Great War, if you want to fight in that battlefield of the Western Front in that troglodyte world of trenches and dugouts, you want to be shorter. You don't want to be six foot four because your head is going to be sticking over the top of the parapet. 
So in some respects, these smaller, shorter men had a great advantage in that they could get into cover quickly and be below the line of fire in many cases. But it did have its challenges, and when you read the accounts of men who served in Bantam units, they did receive a lot of ridicule, a lot of ribbing from the rest of the army. So as 1916 moves into 1917, and these volunteers from the early period of the war are now on the Western Front, how many Bantams are we talking about? Well, we're looking really at tens of thousands of men who step forward like that. Two entire divisions of them, that's over 40,000 men. And on top of that, there were other battalions that served in other formations. So it's not an insignificant number. And when you look at the soldiers that were killed in battles like the Somme or on the Hindenburg Line or in the fighting at Cambrai, which is where this tale will take us, then it's not an insignificant number that were killed either. And on top of that, many were decorated for their bravery. Perhaps shorter men, ridiculed by their comrades, made a greater effort to prove their bravery. And you've got men like William Boynton Butler, for example, who was born at Armley near Leeds in 1894. He enlisted in January 1915 as a bantam in the 17th Battalion, the West Yorkshire Regiment, one of the Leeds Powell's battalions. He was five foot two and he'd previously been rejected on several occasions by the army. He went on to be awarded the Victoria Cross while on attachment to the 106 Trench Mortar Battery in the fighting near St Quentin in August 1917. He survived the war and died in the 1970s. So he's one of many men decorated for their bravery as bantams on the battlefield. And there were famous bantams too. The war poet Isaac Rosenberg was a bantam. He also enlisted in January 1915 in the 12th Battalion, the Suffolk Regiment, being under five foot three. He later transferred to the King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment, served in France from 1916, and his service there inspired him to write some of the great war poems of the First World War, until he was sadly killed in action in the fighting near Arras during the German offensive there, in April of 1918. So when we talk about the Bantam soldiers of the Great War, this is not an insignificant contribution. Just like Richard Van Emden's work on teenage Tommies, this aspect of the First World War is something that we need to be aware of and should be remembered. And rather than try and look at what all of the different Bantam battalions did in the Great War, we're going to focus on the 40th Division, that comprised a dozen of these Bantam units originally, and we'll look at how they were formed, their training, their journey to France, and their road to a place called Bourlon Wood at Combray in 1917. We often talk about divisions on this podcast, and I know some of you kind of switch off when we do that, but it's an important part of our understanding of how the Great War was fought from a British and Commonwealth perspective. And indeed, other armies used divisions as a formation as well. And what a division was, was around about 20,000 men. It was a self-contained unit. 12 infantry battalions to do the fighting at the point of the bayonet on the battlefield, and then support troops to keep them there, protect them, and support them on the battlefield. So artillery, Royal Field Artillery, to drop shells on their behalf onto the enemy, to protect them on the battlefield with defensive fire, 
Then there were Royal Engineers to do engineering tasks on the battlefield, whether that's to carry Bangalore torpedoes into an attack to cut the German wire or to work on specific structures within a trench system, for example. And then you have the Medical Corps, the Royal Army Medical Corps, field ambulances to deal with the wounded coming back from the battlefield areas, Army Veterinary Corps units to deal with the horses that are used in almost every unit and the casualties that they suffer and the care and the welfare of those animals. Transports in the form of horse transport and motor transport from the Army Service Corps and a multitude of other units, some of which changed as the war went on. So when trench warfare came about, static warfare, divisions started to get trench mortar, heavy trench mortar batteries, units manned by the Royal Garrison Artillery with large trench mortars like the 6-inch Newton bomb and the 9.45-inch Flying Pig, for example. Um, So it was a changing unit throughout the war, but an important one. And the 40th Division, which was one of the two Bantam divisions that we spoke of, was one of those that went across to the Western Front in 1917. It's got a very good divisional history, which has been reprinted by Naval and Military Press, and in it, it described itself as a, a blend of English, Welsh and Scottish units. So it's not from one specific geographic location. It really represents the whole of Great Britain. So it's quite an important formation in that respect. What it found, though, as the division began to come together, so what would happen is all these different units would be raised or formed in different parts of Britain and then would be brought together into a central location to be formed into this infantry division. In this case, the 40th Division was around Aldershot, the home of the British Army. So the units were brought in, and what they found, as the divisional history explains, is that when they brought these Bantam battalions in made up of these shorter stature men, they found that quite a lot of them were physically unfit. As we've mentioned before, that if you've grown up in a polluted environment and that has essentially stunted your growth, you are going to have other physical deficiencies that may affect your ability as a soldier. And so that what they found was that many of these men were not A1 physically fit. Now, in the First World War, there were categories of fitness and each one was graded, A, B, C, and then a number against them. And the top level of fitness was A1, and the bottom, I think, was C3. Charlie Chaplin was considered to be C3, for example, as a bit of a a joke. I think that's a Ben's father cartoon that grades him as C3, the bottom of the barrel, as it were. And what they found was that these men were not C3, they were not right at the bottom there, but they were not A1 fighting fit ready for service in the trenches and they had to weed out quite a lot of these men and either discharge them from the army because they couldn't serve at all or they had to move them into rear echelon units and later on in the war I would guess that quite a lot of these men probably ended up in the Labour Corps for example so not fit to fight but fit to labour and it cites a few examples of this in one battalion for example when it joined the division it was reduced from a 1,000 men, officers and men, to just over 200. So 80% of its effectives were not effective. They could not continue as A1 physically fit soldiers. So that meant that other men, possibly other bantams, but men from all over Britain, from other units, were then brought in as replacements. So some of the characteristics, the things that define them as bantam battalions, 
was lost to a degree over this period, but they still saw themselves as this bantam division. But what it meant by 1916, so having spent a year training and bringing these forces together, by 1916 they were drastically under strength as a fighting formation, so not yet ready to be sent overseas. And other units were then brought in. Four new non-bantam battalions arrived to become part of the division. And then officers were sent all over the UK to continue with the recruitment. After one such recruitment drive that led to a lot of Londoners joining the units within the division, the divisional history records at their time in Aldershot was spent like this. Situated in one of the most beautiful parts of beautiful Surrey, life in camp must have been a wonderful experience to these Londoners, who had seldom seen anything of the country outside of Wandsworth, except perhaps on bank holidays, when they took their families to some overcrowded heath or a common a little way out of London. To live in this beautiful country, rising early in the morning, breathing clean, fresh air and the scent of the pine woods which surrounded the camp, spending the days in healthy outdoor exercises and feeling a fitness they would never have felt in the ordinary course of their lives, this was indeed a heaven-sent experience for them. When parades were finished for the day, they wandered off in twos and threes to the surrounding villages, where some would consume vast quantities of beer and return to camp in a hilarious mood, whilst others would go off in search of the female society which camp life denied them. Finally, with the influx of volunteers, with the training apace and the soldiers getting nearer and nearer to the final preparations that they needed to take them overseas, orders arrived to move the division to France and in May 1916 they travelled down to Southampton and across to Le Havre. Not all in one go, like most of these divisions, infantry went across, then artillery and engineers, and gradually they came together on the other side. And the divisional history records that just over 20,000 men went to France in that sailing, 6,000 horses, 64 guns, and over a 1,000 different types of vehicles. And this again gives you an insight into what a big formation a division was. They moved into the Lens and Luz sector, which at that time was a quiet sector. The Battle of Luz had been fought there the previous year. At that point, the Battle of the Somme was looming close, so units were being sent down to the Somme to take part in that, and they relieved different battalions that were holding the line around Luz. So they went from the beauty of the Surrey countryside into the flat coal fields of northern France. And the 18th Battalion of the Welsh Regiment made their first trench raid on the night of the 18th, 19th of July 1916 when they attacked the German positions around the Double Crassier. The Double Crassier featured in a previous podcast that we've done. It was a, a slag heap, one of these coal mountains just behind the German trenches, very close to the town of Luz. They were a division that was probably at that stage not considered ready for a major battle so they missed out on the battle of the Somme but they moved down to Rancor on the Somme front in that cold winter of 1916-17 when the front line area the temperatures dropped to something like minus 25 a terrible terrible winter and this is how the divisional history recalls it now began three months in the most godforsaken and miserable area in France, bar possibly the salient of Ypres. 
The whole countryside was a churned-up, yeasty mass of mud as a result of the vile weather and of the battle which had even yet had not petered out. The weather was awful. Constant rain was varied by spells of intensely cold weather and some very heavy snowfalls. Mud and dirt were everywhere. The French had been in occupation of the line, and however gallant our allies may have been, their notions on sanitation were medieval. Billets in the back area were camps of dirty, wet and decrepit huts. Seen at that period of the year, the countryside was bleak, mournful, uninviting and miserable. Roads cut up, villages badly knocked about, and everywhere signs of the advance of large bodies of troops and French troops at that. So much for the back area, Bray to Curlew. But no pen can do justice to the front region, the line. It could not be called that. It just beggars description. It consisted of a mass of shell holes, of a general sea of mud, of lesser lakes and lagoons of icy water. Trenches did not exist, except for short lengths on higher ground. Of communication trenches there were none. Men had to do the best they could to improve such shell holes. Villages there were in profusion, but on the map, in reality, they were but flattened brickwork. Looking back on those days, it is hard to realise how human beings could have existed in such conditions. After that hard and testing winter, the Bantams of the 40th Division found the German army on the move, retreating to the Hindenburg Line, and they followed that up, and the division found itself on the outskirts of the town of Peron on the Somme, previously a German headquarters, a billeting town, a place where the Germans resupplied their troops on that part of the Somme front, now abandoned, and the 13th Battalion of the East Surrey Regiment became the first British unit to enter the town in March 1917. A few weeks later, with the settling down of the front around this new Hindenburg Line position, the units of the division found themselves in action near to the village of Guzaucourt on the southern part of the Combray front. This was their first battle. It cost them just under a thousand casualties and they took over 340 prisoners of war and captured eight enemy machine guns. It was a small battle in comparison with what was to come, but it gave them their first taste of action. And then from there they moved into another quiet sector at a place called Lavacary for the summer of 1917. In many respects they were a, a lucky division in that they missed a major engagements on the Somme in 1916. They were holding the line in front of the Germans when they pulled back to the Hindenburg line and their operations in April of 1917 were on a quiet sector, not part of the main Battle of Arras. So that meant that by the late summer of 1917, as the autumn approached, they were a division that still had a very high proportion of their original officers and men, probably quite rare within the British Expeditionary Force at that time. And it made them an inviting prize for any British commander to use on the battlefields, because here was a unit at full strength. It had seen some action. It had been bloodied on the battlefield and its men were beginning to properly acclimatise to trench warfare after over a year on the Western Front. And in November 1917, as the Battle of Combray approached, and up in Flanders the Third Battle of Eat was coming to an end, the division was in full training for its next battle, most likely 
its biggest battle so far. Would that be Flanders or would it be elsewhere? And in the distance as the guns rumbled signalling the beginning of the operations around Cambrai with the attack there on the 20th of November 1917 and the first mass use of tanks by the British, more than 400 of the new Mark IV tanks attacking the German positions along the Hindenburg line in this sector of the battlefield, the generals, looking for reinforcements to move up to continue with the battle, moved their flags on a map and the 40th Division was selected to continue and move up to a wood close to the city of Cambrai, a wood that General Haig himself had deemed one of the most important features on that battlefield. And that was Bourlon Wood. The Battle of Cambrai that was fought in this area of northern France in November and December of 1917 was an attempt by the British to break the German Hindenburg line in the same way they had at Arras, but more successfully perhaps, and also to give the Tank Corps, the newly created Tank Corps, which had come into existence under a raw warrant in July of 1917, just before the Third Battle of Ypres, where its tanks committed to that fighting and ended up being bogged in the mud and many of them destroyed by German artillery fire. Many commanders had kind of gone off tanks after that, thinking that they might have been more trouble than they were worth. But the senior command echelon of the British Army on the Western Front, including General Haig, believed in tanks, and they gave the tank corps an opportunity at Cambrai to demonstrate what they could do. And the opening phase of the battle on the 20th of November saw an unprecedented number of the new Mark IV British tanks move forward, successfully assisting the infantry to capture their objectives and break through the German lines. So while Combray may not have been the birth of the tanks, that was on the Somme in September of 1916, it was really the birth of this new type of warfare where tanks would play a much greater role. And in that final year of the war from Combray until the armistice in 1918, tanks would become part of the battlefield, an essential part of any commander's kit to take on the enemy and defeat them. And their role would only increase as the war went on. Now, the opening phase of Combray was hugely successful. Most, if not all, of the objectives in most locations were taken and there were some quite significant advances. But when General Haig had looked at the map of Combray, he'd seen Bourlon Wood, this dark mass of woodland, sitting on a high point, dominating the old Roman road from Bapome to Combray, guarding essentially the approaches to the city of Combray itself, a major German railhead. If that could be taken, it might unhinge the German positions on this part of the Western Front and he had highlighted that as a potential problem, and a problem it was. British troops got to the outskirts of Bourlon on the opening day of the battle, but the Germans were holding fast, and more units were brought up, and that's where the 40th Division was taken from its training and then sent up to the front-line area. When they arrived, the battle was almost two days old, they took over from units of the 62nd West Riding Division. This was a Yorkshire Territorial Division that had seen action from the advance from Havering Corps. We spoke about their battle in that area in an earlier podcast. 
and the units, the Bantams of the 4th Division, took over the trenches in front of the wood, close to the village of Anur. There was a position there called the Anur Chapel. They took over that as well, and in the neighbouring village of Graincourt, they moved into the catacombs there, and many soldiers and headquarters were established beneath the battlefield. These were subterranean chalk quarries, catacombs probably dating back to the medieval period, and they were right across this region of France. The Germans had captured some of the archives in Cambrai and northern France during their advance in the early period of the war and had found the French records of where these catacomb systems were and actually created their own guide to them, which they published during the war. The archives of the Historial Museum at Peron have a copy of this, which I saw many years ago. It's a fascinating insight into what was beneath the battlefield that the Germans knew about and then utilised when these villages were part of their defensive line. It having been captured in the early stage of the Combray advance, the British were now using these catacombs. So the division was getting into place, getting ready for its assault. Now, as the divisional history had mentioned, it was a mix of British, Scottish and Welsh units in the 40th Division, but there was one brigade of four infantry battalions, the 119th Brigade, that consisted of the 19th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the 12th South Wales Borderers, and the 17th and the 18th Battalions of the Welsh Regiment, so very much a Welsh formation. And at Combray, in these actions here at Bourlon Wood, it was commanded by Brigadier General F.P. Crozier. Now, Crozier was an interesting character. He was in Ireland when the war broke out. He'd helped raise a battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles, and he'd fought with them on the Somme in 1916 as part of the Ulster Division. He wasn't always a popular officer, but he survived the war and he wrote several memoirs based on his war experiences. The Men I Killed was one of those, an interesting title for a book, and A Brass Hat in No Man's Land. And this is an extract from that book giving his account of this opening phase of the battle. It's chapter 8 of the book which he calls the Welsh Epic, which is the epic battle that his Welsh battalions took part in in the fighting for Borlon Wood. And he says, I hurry back to the brigade. There is no dawdling now at Boulogne. Is there not training to be done? Despite all else said to the contrary, our possible objectives are very long and quite indefinite. We may have to take Borlon Wood, we are told, or throw out outposts 20 miles to the east of it. Much will depend on the breakthrough, most on the tanks and cavalry. As a brigade, we are trained to the minute. We have excelled in ceremonial. We shall excel in the harder stuff which draws its inspiration from close-order drill. The men are rested. They have worked, drilled, manoeuvred, boxed, run, marched, and fed as only those can do whose hearts are elsewhere than on their sleeves. At wood fighting, they have gone through it like a knife through butter, damning the consequences and not counting the loss. Positive thought, positive movement, positive action in all things is the only thing now to make peace possible. We are positive. At 6.20am on the 20th of November, the tanks go over. We reach Danger Corner in a deluge on the 22nd. All now depends on us and the cavalry. We are to attack Borlorn Wood tomorrow. The line that they took over ran from the facing edge 
of Bourlon village across the slopes, the open slopes in front of Bourlon wood, near to some chalk pits, and then across to the Bapome Combray Road, that old Roman road that ran through this part of the battlefield. Their attack would take place on the 23rd of November 1917, three days into the Battle of Combray. Eight of the Bantam battalions would be in the assault, with four battalions attacking the village, and Crozier's Welshmen would be attacking the wood. The Germans were largely holding outposts in this area. There were small groups of them close to the village of Bourlon, and then the wood itself was held in positions on the edge or within it. There wasn't a major trench system here, as there had been in the opening stages of the Battle of Combray. This outpost line with machine guns and probably makeshift infantry positions was typical of how the fighting moved on during this phase of the battle. Zero hour was at 10.30 in the morning, and 20 minutes later, tanks were due to pass through the infantry in support in the attack on the wood. This is how the divisional history describes it. Ball on wood, with which the 40th Division is imperishably connected, might justly be named the key of the whole position. Thickly timbered, some 600 acres in extent, it was situated on a ridge, the highest point of which rises 150 feet above the level of the Bapome Combray Road. From the road, the ground slopes gradually upward with a gradient of 1 in 20, so that the wooded ridge stands out prominently above the surrounding landscape. The trees, principally fir, but with occasional oak, were large in size, and the wood, especially the lower part, was filled with a thick undergrowth of hazel and large aspens, which made progress very difficult. Inside the wood were many tracks, of which the principal was one running almost east and west across it. In many respects, these were not unlike the drives in an English woodland, but in places their sunken formation afforded them a special tactical value. The wood did not cover the whole of the ridge, for from the western side there projected a spur in continuation of the tree-covered high ground. With this countryside ahead of them, the attacking Bantam battalions made ready for the attack. There was a mist across the battlefield, a mist that in many respects shielded the attackers as they moved forward into that open ground. The barrage had hit the wood as they moved forward. Smoke had been meant to drop on the positions around the wood to further shield their movement, but that hadn't happened. So the men, exposed in the open, moved across those slopes into the edge of the woodland. At this point, their own barrage stopped. The artillery could not assist them once they were in the wood. There was no clear line of sight, and both sides would be very close together. So if you tried to drop artillery fire onto the Germans, you could easily drop it onto your own men. So after that, the infantry were on their own, except, of course, that they had tanks to assist them. And just over half an hour into the battle, those tanks had arrived in the wood and were supporting the infantry as they moved forward. In the Welsh assault, the 19th Royal Welsh Fusiliers were on the right and the 12th South Wales Borderers on the left. They had feared enemy fire from the wood as they moved across that open ground, and while there were some, it was nowhere near as much as they anticipated. That meant they could move rapidly into the trees. It seemed as if the Germans had pulled back because the German artillery then dropped on them as they entered that area of the woodland. But they were in, 
The 19th Royal Welsh Fusiliers had got in first, and as they pushed on, they met opposition in a sunken lane in the wood. Now, the rides that the divisional history had mentioned often were sunken, typical sunken lanes of this part of a chalk landscape, and the Germans had defended those, so whilst there might not have been trenches, they could use the geographical features within the wood as defensive points, and indeed they did. Fighting in woods is always a difficult prospect. The men had been trained to that to a certain degree, and there had been some experience of it earlier in the war. In the very first Battle of Ypres in 1914, men had fought in the woods around Zillabeek and close to the men in road, but particularly in battles like the Somme with the attack on Bernafay Ward and Trones Ward, Delville Ward and High Ward, it had brought that fighting within woods. And for Welshmen, like Crozier's battalions, Mamet's Wood, where the Welsh division had been annihilated in 1916, much had been learned from that experience. But what it meant was that this was not trench warfare. They were not advancing from trench to trench through barbed wire position across a smashed landscape full of shell holes. They were moving through woodland damaged by artillery fire. A lot of undergrowth, trees that had come down. When artillery struck the canopy of the trees, it would then turn the trees into shrapnel and wooden shards would come down, raining down and wounding soldiers So it wasn't just the shells that could cause injuries, the destruction of the trees could do that as well. And it meant observation and movement within that smashed tree landscape was very, very difficult indeed. It also made movement for the tanks difficult. They had to stick to the rides. They weighed a lot, they could crush trees, but in a wood, trying to push trees over and make a path through was very, very difficult. So... Their utilisation in terms of the way they would normally cooperate between the tanks and the infantry, supporting an infantry battalion with a pair, let's say, of male and female tanks, the male tanks with six-pounder guns, they would fire high explosive to take on strong points or machine gun positions, and the female tanks with machine guns would open up on any infantry that would try to take on their own friendly infantry fighting alongside them. But that wasn't entirely possible in this quite enclosed landscape within Borlon Wood. And the Germans had developed methods to immobilise tanks by using cluster stick grenades, by taking the heads of stick grenades, binding them all together, and with a central handle and a central detonator, they could toss that under a track and blow the track off. So although they might not be able to destroy the tank, at this stage there were no anti-tank rifles that wouldn't come until 1918 they could immobilize them and obviously in the close confines of a wood an infantry unit a german infantry unit could swarm all over a tank and obviously knock it out so it was not ideal ground for the tanks to operate and the kind of very good cooperation that they had between themselves and infantry on other parts of the combray battlefield couldn't really work here all of the accounts of the bantams within the wood talk about german snipers And there's one account of 2nd Lieutenant Morgan, who was the intelligence officer of the 19th Royal Welsh Fusiliers. He was moving forward to try and scout to see where the Germans were, raised his field glasses to look through the shattered trees when a sniper opened up and shot him straight through the lens and straight through the head and killed him instantly. So this kind of harassment of the troops as they moved forward and then they would encounter German defensive lines made progress quite slow in many places. By midday, so two hours into the battle, most of the units were a fair way into the wood 
and the village, the neighbouring village of Borlon, had been partially captured. But then the Germans counterattacked and the Bantams found themselves digging in, digging in close to the houses of the village or trying to dig in in the woods. And again, fighting in woods makes digging in very, very difficult indeed because you've got tree roots everywhere. And with an entrenching tool, the standard bit of equipment for digging in that soldiers carried with them, that probably wasn't enough. So unless the men had brought a good supply of infantry shovels with them, digging in was going to be almost nigh on impossible. And even with the shovels, it would be a difficult task with all these tree roots everywhere. Casualties mounted, particularly amongst the officers. You've got to remember that the battalions within the division, the Bantam battalions, have not suffered heavy casualties. So a very high proportion of their original officers are still serving with these units. The men know them, the men trust them, the men look to them. So when they become casualties, it has a big effect on these units. Lieutenant Colonel Kennedy, for example, commanding the 18th Welsh, was killed leading his men into action. And the loss of a commanding officer at a key moment in a battle is not good for the morale within that unit. But the Bantams hold on against these German counter-attacks, and at that point, just over 200 dismounted cavalry from the 15th Hussars arrive to give them some support. Now, cavalry would play a major role in the Battle of Combray. The, the breakthrough of the German lines would give them an opportunity to do what cavalry did best, advance quickly over open ground, but cavalry soldiers were trained as infantry as well, so they could be quickly dismounted and sent up as a stopgap, and that's exactly what happened here. They'd left their horses on the outskirts of the wood and moved up through the trees as infantry. So they were supporting the Bantam battalions and the other battalions of the division that were here. The positions held overnight, and the next day tanks advanced once more with infantry from the division into the village of Borlon, but the Germans would not give ground and casualties mounted. The divisional history recorded, So ended the first day's fighting of the battle forever known as that of Borlon Wood. Within a few hours, the 40th Division, which so far in the war had been afforded no outstanding opportunity of showing its special worth, had leaped to the forefront as one of the fighting divisions on the Western Front. Its objective had, indeed, not yet been fully secured, the wood was not entirely clear of Germans, and the village still remained in enemy hands. Nevertheless, it must be remembered that if the goal had not been reached, the progress made had been farther than that achieved by the divisions on either flank, and the inability of those divisions to get forward had had the effect of leaving the 40th Division in a salient with all the disadvantages and difficulties of such a position. Effectively, the Bantams found themselves in this kind of U-shaped position within the wood, with the Germans able to attack them and shell them and rifle grenade them and snipe them from multiple sides. But they held on for another day and another day, and two days into the fighting here saw the arrival of more cavalry to bolster up their position. The 19th Hussars and the 1st Bedfordshire Yeomanry, dismounted soldiers from both those regiments, came in to hold the line, and the fighting for the village, just outside the edge of the wood, continued. The wood could not be captured without the village, and the village could not be captured without the wood. And it was at this point, really, that a lot of communications on the battlefield began to break down. Again, in the enclosed nature of fighting within woodland, 
It wasn't clear where your own friendly units were. Communication broke down. Static telephone lines could be damaged by shell fire. Runners could be killed and wounded. It wasn't probably possible to use pigeons under those circumstances to send messages. And so it meant that really a lot of units felt cut off, not really knowing the situation outside of their own immediate battle area. And those in the village really weren't sure of what was happening in the wood and those in the wood were not really sure of what was happening in the village. And the Germans clearly tried to exploit this with their counter-attacks to try and drive a wedge between the units in the village and the units in the wood and push them all back. But the Bantams held, and they held until their relief on the 27th of November 1917. They'd spent five days in the wood. They'd captured 42 German machine guns, taken over 700 prisoners of war. Seven officers were subsequently awarded the DSO for their bravery in the fighting. 42 military crosses were conferred upon officers for their bravery. These were medals given to company and platoon commanders. Two bars were also given to the military cross, and one man received incredibly the second bar to his MC, Captain Redding of the Suffolk Regiment. 27 Distinguished Conduct Medals were given to the ordinary soldiers in the ranks and numerous military medals. The casualties were heavy. 172 officers and 3,191 men. As the divisional history says, it was an infantry battle. That arm bore the brunt of the casualties and upon that arm practically all the decorations were conferred. The Bantams had shown their worth but the wood had not been captured. The village of Borlon had not been captured. What had gone wrong? The cooperation here with the tanks was minimal. Their effect within the wood and their impact on the outcome of the battle in the enclosed landscape of the wood was greatly affected by the conditions on the ground. The infantry were hampered by the advance through the trees. Communications had been an issue and there had been a lack of reserves. The fact that cavalry were being brought up dismounted to plug the gap shows how desperate on this part of the battlefield they were for reserves that had clearly not been properly thought out. The battle for Borlon Wood continued. This was not its last page, but the Bantams walked away. The dark oaks cast shadows across their dead, and aside from the fallen who would remain behind within the wood, or in one of the cemeteries close by forevermore, each man who survived the Battle of Borlon Wood had left behind something of himself too amongst the trees of that wooded area of northern France. For them, it was a battle like no other. For the men of the 40th Division, for the Bantams, this was a defining battle on the Western Front, the Battle of Borlon Wood. I'm holding the copy of the 40th Division History in my hand. It's a blue-covered book. And on that cover, and I'll put a picture of this on the podcast website, is the embossed symbol of a bantam cockerel. That's where the bantams get their name from, the fighting cockerel. But overlaying it in a diamond, an embossed diamond, is another symbol. And the Divisional History gives an insight into what that was. As a division, the 40th shared neither in the swift opening phase nor in the swift debacle of all the high hopes founded upon it. 
It was put in at a critical time and given a stiff task. It did what it was asked and handed over Borlorn Wood intact to its relief. As a remembrance of its heroism and success, the acorn and oak leaves were added to the divisional badge and displayed upon the diamond typifying Borlorn Wood and conveying to heralds yet unborn the achievements of November 1917. A walk today begins at Anna British Cemetery, and I'll put a map of this on the podcast website. This is really a 1918 cemetery, started by the 57th Divisional Burial Officer in the fighting here in October of 1918, in the final push for Cambrai. It then contained just 131 graves and then was greatly increased after the armistice by the concentration of 875 graves from the surrounding battlefields, including Borlon Wood. There are now 830 British soldiers, 89 from New Zealand, 86 from Canada and one from Australia. The unnamed graves number 459 and there are special memorials to seven British soldiers believed to be buried among them. When you walk amongst the unknown graves here and beyond the cemetery you can see the trees, the canopy of Borlon Wood, you look down and see some of the cap badges of the units that made up the 40th Division. We'll never know who these men are, but they are men who fell in that fighting in November 1917. Leaving the cemetery you can cross onto the main Combray Bapome Road Combray is away to your right, beyond the woods in the far distance, unseen from here, and Bapome way to our left. And going up through the neighbouring village of Anna Chapel, we can take the D16 that runs up along the edge of the wood. As you come up through a sunken area, you get a good view across the fields towards the edge of the wood and that open bit of ground where Brigadier General Crozier's Welshmen made their assault up those slopes into the edge of the wood. You can then continue into Borlon village itself. The village itself was flattened completely by the end of the Great War, but there are small sections of wall here and there that remain. On the western outskirts of the village of Borlon, for example, down a little track, there is a whole section of battle-scarred wall there that is typical of what much of the village would have looked like when the units, the Bantams of the 40th Division, tried to fight their way through it. And then you can take a road, a dead straight road, that takes you up towards the Canadian Memorial in Borlon Wood. Now that is a tale for another day. But walking into the trees beyond, taking a path, one of those rides up through the wood, and you can walk for quite some distance in there, You can see amongst the trees the signs of shell holes. You encounter those sections of sunken lane that the Germans used as part of their defence. It really gives you an insight into what the wood, as much as we can ever do after a hundred years, a bit of an insight into what it must have looked like when they first entered it in that initial assault of November 1917. But the Bantams, this was just one part of the story of this wood. Unit after unit would try and fight their way through that key position of Borlon in 1917. For the Bantams, that symbol on their divisional flash would remind them always of their sacrifice here. But other sacrifice was to come. For others, this too would be part of their 
old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.